0: Hello, welcome to Week from the Chaff. I'm Finn Locustain, the editor-in-chief of 8.9.com,
1: and I'm Phil Carson, the UK policy lead for the Nature-Friendly Farming Network.
0: fantastic. Now, Phil, we're going to talk through just three or four fairly quick pieces from the 8.9.com website. Uh, and then we're going to move on to talking in more detail about COP28. There are quite a few stories as you might imagine at this stage uh, on the website about COP28, but we're going to talk about them in the round uh, and about one or two of those stories that might look like they're good in the first glance, but actually there's a big question over whether
1: they're just greenwash. So, let's start off with upland farms. Yes, indeed. So, the first story which caught my eye this week on the website is a piece by the National Farmers Union which has undertaken modelling of six different upland farms Um, and essentially it demonstrates that government's environmental land management scheme will be unable to make up the loss of income that will be incurred as a result of the phase out of basic payments. And the NFU is calling for government to better recognise the work that upland farms do for rural communities. So it's demonstrated that on average, businesses will lose 37% of their support payments under the current sustainable farming incentive and the countryside stewardship. So there's a bit of an income gap. And this is something that hasn't just been called for or or attention has been drawn to by the NFU. There's been a range of other organisations, including ourselves at the Nature Friendly Farming Network, and a whole range of different solutions have been advocated for.
0: And I wonder, you know, I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist, but there has been a lot of talk in the press about the ideas that our uplands are in some way biodiversity deserts, which I I just want to say from the outset is complete nonsense. You know, there may well be some overstocking in places, there may well be some impact on biodiversity, but at the same time, you have some fantastic shepherding that goes on in the UK uh, and you walk across some of these farms and get down, get, your hands digging in the sward, and there's some incredible biodiversity, often at a micro level there. But just going back to that conspiracy theory notion, do you think that this, the fact that the upland farms are going to be worse off currently under arms, is that by accident or by design? Uh, has the government just sort of given in to the idea that somehow let's get the sheep off the uplands and give it over to rewilding and potentially, you know, some forestry in the future? Do you think it's by luck or judgment?
1: Mm, good question. I think it has been a result of trying to go for the simplest solution in addressing um, management in these places. It's been highlighted for quite some time that a change in payments to environmental land management payments would likely be a big challenge for farms in these landscapes based on current payment methodologies, so cost incurred, income foregone. So paying for the level of production or the cost of production that you forego to deliver an environmental benefit. In these landscapes, production payments, I suppose, that farms generate from production are generally lower, meaning that the payments they get from environmental land management are going to be lower too. And quite a number of organisations have drawn attention to this over time. Um, And I've I've called for a range of different solutions. So that would be accounting for the opportunity costs of um, potentially going into a different land use altogether or leaving farming, payments to kind of sustain the whole business based on the fact that they deliver public goods, um, and also paying for the carbon value of of different habitats. So Green Alliance have recently called for something similar on that front. Those are a range of solutions that, that could overcome some of these challenges. But I think it's been quite difficult from government when designing schemes or from DEFRA when designing schemes to adopt those. And they've gone for the simplest option, which has been cost incurred, income forgone, And then these challenges have arisen. So I don't think it's been necessarily intentional, but we're starting to see the impacts of that. And we quickly need to see some of those proposed solutions potentially being adopted. And we have seen landscape recovery schemes like that but we do need um, a fuller package of different funding opportunities coming down the line. So,
0: so again it really it just needs more differentiation it's a, you know you can't have a one size fits all approach to these things and there needs to be more recognition and, and again I guess that comes back to that idea that you know we need to make sure that we are extending the best of upland farming uh, so that we're able to recognise and reward the ecological benefits there and I'm really heartened by a lot of the conversations that I've had with upland farmers over the the last couple of years. I mean, people from Caroline Grindrod from Roots of Nature at one end at that sort of fully regenerative end up to, you know, Phil Stocker, the chief executive of the National Sheep Association, both of them saying that really what we need to see is farmers spending more time with their uh, flocks themselves, uh, an increase in shepherding. And uh, and the change that needs to take place is that shepherds are able to get out there and do more shepherding to make sure that the sheep are being managed in a way that delivers that ecological benefit as well as providing the food and fibre?
1: Yeah, right grazing at the right time in the right place to deliver a lot of the the benefits we want to see. And I think that's one of the things that can sometimes be overlooked for certain types of outcomes that we want to deliver in the uplands. It's totally reliant on grazing management to, to achieve those and you lose that, then you lose some of the value for money.
0: Fantastic. I want to move on. We've got two stories talking about insects. But I think that these particular stories are both really interesting for different reasons. So the first story that we put up on the website uh, this week is from Innovative Farmers. And the headline is Farmers Treating Insects as Livestock in Trial to Fight Pests. And uh, And it starts off, Six farmers hope to unlock knowledge about how to attract and support the right Insect populations and when and where they're most needed by looking at the impact of flower establishment techniques, flower species mixes, and distribution of flowering features on the farm. And one of the quotes that I just wanted to draw out was from Dr. David George, who's an entomologist at Newcastle. And he said, While pollinators are essential for food production and biodiversity, farmers know much less about attracting and supporting the right predatory insects, such as ladybirds and parasitic wasps, which eat aphids and other pests. In the last few years, however, there's been a huge increase in the number of farmers now engaging with methods to encourage these beneficial insects and the biological control services they can provide. Now, obviously, you're the head of policy for the Nature-Friendly Farming Network, so this must be the kind of thing that you're hearing from farmers on a fairly regular basis.
1: Oh, for sure, for sure. We have quite a few examples of farmers that have gone fully insecticide-free, as a result of creating the right habitat for beneficials. So they're starting to see, um, yeah, natural kind of predation and pest control coming into the system, means they don't have to spend money on, yeah, pesticides for fossil fuel-based inputs, their costs are down, their system's a lot healthier. It doesn't mean that they won't ever use those, but they have a lot less of a need to. And I think there is a relatively well-established link between um, so-called space for nature and what it can deliver for your, your business. So rather than framing it as making space or sacrificing space um, to deliver something that's good for the environment, it's about using that to kind of harnessing natural processes to deliver better food production. Yeah, the evidence behind this is quite strong. So recent piece of research which showed that actually having flower-rich habitat next to a bean crop can increase yield by 25 to 35%. So you're losing total area, but you're actually increasing your yield. And then there's other studies, I suppose, with cereals and things like that, demonstrating that you can take land out of production, put it into high quality habitat, and then you're getting no impact on yield. And I think the thing with this, though, which is really quite crucial, is it's not a broad brush. You create flower-rich habitat, you get loads of benefits. It's being very specific as to what you should do on your farm to get the best benefits in your local area and making it a lot more, um, specific and intentional
0: and i guess there are lots of different ways of achieving this aren't there in some systems it might be that those flowers are sort of fully integrated within uh within a more of a livestocky sort of based system and in others it might be that those flowers are around the outside of a field but with others it might be that there are you know a, a certain number of rows uh, that are given over to uh, to those flower species so that you're creating uh, a matrix of these flowers across uh, across your landholding
1: for sure and i think a a lot of this comes down to the size of your of your holding um you know, the, uh, we've seen over a long period of time field sizes get bigger and bigger and bigger and now we're trying to block that up again and yeah we're starting to see a lot more of these measures being brought in field Um, which is quite exciting to see
0: and i'm interested in that whole notion of yield and of course i suppose that part of that comes from and it must not just yield but actually the quality of the the food product itself that if a plant is spending a lot of its energy in trying to fight a particular pest and then that pest essentially disappears because there's another insect that's doing that job on behalf of the plant then that gives the plant all of its uh, ability all of its energy capacity can go into producing both the yield and the Quality of that food.
1: Definitely. And we hear stories of um there's a crop, two crops, both of them start reasonably well. Then you get an influx of pest species coming in, and you hear of one farmer who has um all of the right kind of supporting nature-based infrastructure on the farm to deal with that naturally, doesn't spray. The one that doesn't does, trying to address the issue. And then you hear of the farmer that hasn't sprayed actually is able to sell said crop for human consumption, while the other goes into animal feed. And yeah, I think that's partly because of the energy that's being expended on trying to address the issue because the system isn't as healthy as it could be.
0: The second insect story that we've got is more research and innovation needed to make insect farming a success. And this is following on from uh, a Nuffield scholarship. It was uh, a report that had been put in from last year uh, by Dr. Olivia Champion. And her report was called Can Carbon Neutral Insects Be Farmed Profitably? And and of course, this comes alongside the rise in insects, both for human consumption in the West, obviously, they're already being consumed in other countries as well, uh, but also as a feed replacement as people are becoming more climate conscious. They're trying to make sure that they're reducing emissions uh, within that feed supply chain. And so insects have been talked up as a solution. But what she was finding was that quite often uh, where the insects were being used to replace soya, for example, in chicken feed, a lot of the time those insects were being fed soya. So there Mm. was an inherent sort of contradiction taking place in terms of those ecological outcomes and ambitions.
1: Yeah. So there was three key messages which came out of this report and the first one was the cost and carbon footprint of insect farming is dependent on the farming system used especially the substrate used to feed the insects and as you say a lot of that at the moment when it's used commercially is soy or cereal based and which brings into question a lot of different challenges there it also talks about waste streams that cannot be fed humans or animals should be explored to provide an alternative to soy or cereal based substrate And the last one is around cost uh, in terms of making this a feasible option or solution for the future. And at the moment, the cost price of insects per tonne is five to ten times the cost of price of soya. So this is a big barrier that needs to be addressed before this is seen as um, a viable market option.
0: Thanks, Phil. The other thing that I thought was really interesting about this—it just kind of reminded me of some work that's come out of Eurogroup for Animals uh, in the last week or two, where they're talking about insect sentience, about the idea of you know these creatures having you know much more intelligence and more in the way of feeling and social skills than perhaps many people might instantly recognise, and certainly when you look at insects more closely you start to see differences in behavior between them it's just that we haven't really given it an awful lot of thought in the past so the idea of taking you know these decades of farm animal welfare knowledge that we've accrued around sentience and applying them now to the insect world is is really interesting and it's worth just mentioning or reminding ourselves that perhaps 30 years ago An awful lot of people in society would have assumed that fish had very little in the way of intelligence and feeling and anything like sentience. Whereas now we know that they're intelligent uh, and very social creatures, that they have particular personalities, individual fish will have individual personalities, and also that their nervous system is incredibly sensitive and possibly even more sensitive than our own. So it'll be an interesting space
1: to watch. Definitely. And, yeah, could bring rise to lots of kind of moral philosophical questions um, as a result of this. If this is going to be a viable option for the future, it, it definitely has to be at the forefront of our minds. And if trying to address current animal welfare issues, this is seen as a solution to those. We also have to be aware that we could create problems for different species within this as well. And I think your point is very important in relation to that.
0: Let's take a break. So let's move on to COP28. And before we get there, before we get into the conference itself, of course, this time of year always gives corporates the opportunity to champion out some of the things that they're proud of doing. Uh, And I think a lot of the time they wait to make the announcements until the week prior to COP just to sort of somehow show people how brilliant they are. So we have Virgin Atlantic and we ran a story on the website about the world's first transatlantic 100% sustainable aviation. Fuel flight. And so this is a flight that's using what they call SAF. Uh, and the SAF is including 88% HEFA, which is hydroprocessed esters and fatty acids, otherwise known as animal fats and tallows, and 12% SAC, again, lots of acronyms, synthetic aromatic kerosene, which sounds beautiful. Uh, and this is essentially made from plant proteins. So we have sustainable biofuel uh, running this plane. It's great big airbus across the Atlantic. Presumably this could be scaled out across the whole of aviation. Sounds like a good thing, Phil.
1: It does indeed. I can't wait to get my first transatlantic biofueled uh, flight. No
0: conscience. <laughs> conscience free.
1: <laughs> of course, of course, until you think about the, the land use implications of that and the source of those biofuels and how that could potentially result in yeah, land use change, for example, how it could displace food production, how it could actually be driving emissions in some areas of the, of the system as well, which hasn't really been acknowledged by this announcement. And we've already seen quite a lot of debate around our biofuel directives. I suppose the need to include them in, in, um, in unleaded and in diesel and things like that, for example. And, yeah, even if the UK was to stop the use of crop-based biofuels, we would free up enough land to, three, to feed another 3.5 million people a year. And if we were to work with the US, the EU, and we were to, to, to halt yeah, crop-based feedstocks for biofuel production, or actually half those, then we'd be able to actually provide enough food that was kind of lost in the, in the war in Ukraine. So there's lots of questions here around, um, yeah, what the implications of this delivered at scale could be although the technology is quite interesting.
0: (laughs) It is indeed. It brings me back to that whole land sparing and land sharing conversation that if we're we're already struggling to have enough land with the inefficient systems that we have to produce the food that we need, let alone the fibre that we need because we know that fashion needs to make that transition, if we're then going to replace all of the fossil fuels that are in transportation with land use change as well, we're, we're just creating more problems than we can ever possibly solve. But again, if there are ways... Ways of integrating these various different processes so that we're growing plants for food, and some of that plant, some of the stems, uh, for example, are being used to then produce fiber, either for clothing or something else, and some of the other byproducts from those plants are then being used for biofuels. If we can find some ways of doing that, then all well and good, but there's no way we're going to be able to do it at the scale that's necessary to service business as usual for the aviation sector as it stands today
1: yeah and this is one of the key questions or issues which probably isn't that prominent within COP for sure and also more generally within both public discourse we probably are going to have to fly a little bit less we're probably going to have to do things differently especially in the global north
0: it reminds me actually of a conversation that was taking place around 20 years ago around personal carbon rationing uh, and the idea that you could have a, a you know personal credit card effectively and you were given an allowance of carbon credits that you could use. You could choose to spend it all on you know, a couple of flights or you could choose to use it to, to drive to work and when you started to get down low you were then able to trade those so people who didn't travel very much would be able to sell those credits to people who did travel a lot and those people who did travel a lot would have to pay for those additional credits and that through legislation you could reduce the number of credits that people get on an annual basis incrementally until you've started to get fossil fuels out of the system and of course at the time all of the conversation was around civil liberties Uh, but of course we had rationing during the war and as we've said before you know the situation that we are facing in order to make the change that's necessary we need to start sort of treating this as the emergency that it genuinely is
1: Yeah and this would be a real leveller because I've had a look at this as well, and one of the key key issues within the within the climate debate, which we all know, the vast majority of emissions are being driven by a very small subset of the population. And if everyone was given an individual budget, regardless of of income, any of those sorts of things, then those that have lower carbon footprints, largely because of their lifestyles, would would have a means to actually see some of the, see some of the benefits, because people would be trying to buy buy those off them. So there's Maybe a bit of an equalizing effect within that as well. It'd be very difficult to, to apply at a broad scale. And as you say would be subject to a lot of challenge but personally I quite like the idea.
0: Yeah, very hard to see uh, democratically elected politicians being able to do that but at the same time, as you say, you know it would be be one way of doing it and perhaps there is a way of delivering something along those lines which is less politically problematic. Um, Just want to read a couple of quotes from the article. The first is from Sue Pritchard who's Chief Executive of the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission who again says the land use implications of this strategy for Virgin are immense. We already know biofuel crops are contentious and in competition for land when arguably we should be prioritising sustainable food production. And then there was a lovely quote from Jane Buxton, who's the author of the great plant-based con. And she just said, oh, the irony. Cows are a leading driver of climate change if their tallow and meat are consumed as food. But when they're labelled as a sustainable fuel source, somehow um, this becomes fine. And, And she says it's also critical that if cattle are going to become a source of fuel, then any emissions burden needs to be accurately allocated to the different sectors. Because currently, of course, all of that is loaded onto food. People look at beef as a product and think about the emissions linked to that. But when you're using the byproducts for something else, that Hmm. needs to be shared across those various different uses.
1: Yeah, and points to the need for a little bit more of a sophisticated Um, accounting system in the round so we've seen lots of challenges I suppose between emissions from agriculture and then the separation between that and uh, land use um, forestry and land use change (laughs) and then energy all those different things of which a farm can generate or benefit from but isn't usually calculated on on their balance sheet as well so it brings those in. Well we move on to the next one within this um, I suppose, general theme around greenwash and, um, yeah, quite shiny announcements. And this one is from Cargill, who have announced an accelerated commitment to eliminate deforestation and land conversion from their direct and indirect supply chain. Of- Just remind people
0: who Cargill are, Phil.
1: Yes, Cargill are an absolutely monumental agri-food business specializing in um, livestock products with quite a bad tra- track record in a number of different indicators such as deforestation. There's been claims, um, I suppose, of yeah, impacts on, on human rights, all sorts of things associated with this monolith of a company. So. You would say, I suppose, on first glance, similar to the Virgin Atlantic piece, that, yeah, a commitment to end deforestation is positive. But what do you think, Finlow?
0: Well, yes, I mean, it's precisely that. It it looks good from a headline, but then as soon as you start to think about it, you realise this is just a company delaying progress in the first instance until COP and then rushing it out without properly thinking it through. So if anything should be described as greenwash, certainly this should be a contender. The policy isn't fully detailed. It's been rushed out and, and it is incomplete. And one of the concerns is it's delayed until 2025. And so there is a risk of a kind of a race to deforest in those nations that they're talking about ending deforesting in by 2025 before that. And we've got the CEO of Mighty Earth, Glenn Horowitz. Uh, He's certainly taking a more nuanced view. He says that Cargill's commitment, it's important, but it's an incomplete step for nature, climate and communities. This is a commitment, of course, to stop deforestation in Brazil, Argentina and Uruguay. But at the same time, Cargill is one of the top drivers of nature destruction in bolivia paraguay and colombia and they're not included in the commitment and bolivia particularly experienced a 32 percent increase in primary forest loss between 21 and 22 which was at four times the rate of brazil so it looks like they're kind of saying look over here where we're doing something good at the same time as continuing potentially doing something bad elsewhere
1: yeah and i think this raises A bit of a conundrum within the the role of the private sector within these negotiations and we are seeing this massive flurry of announcements look at all of the great stuff that we're doing over here but ultimately there's probably a role for regulation in this space there's definitely a role for regulation in this space actually and to address some of the challenges and cynically looking at it you might see that some of these commitments aren't going far enough and um, they might be used as a distraction to try and avoid some of that that stricter more stringent action um, to really compel them to act so yeah there's a little bit of that within this too and i just thought there the the quote was a lukewarm response um from mighty earth and they finished it with we will continue to closely monitor cases of deforestation in cargo's supply chains given their previous track record.
0: So just before we get into the conference itself, let's talk a little bit about the politics outside the room. And and over the weekend, we had this story coming out on The Guardian website about the COP28 president, so from the uh, United Arab Emirates, saying that there is no science behind demands for the phase-out of fossil fuels. Well, that's a good place to start from. <laughs>
1: yeah this is um, a week or so after the, the leak around um, yeah using the conference as an opportunity to sell fossil fuels onto other under, other nations too. So yeah he's not had the most blinding performance at this cop, I would say um, based on these two issues alone. but I think all joking aside, this is quite dangerous. it's quite frustrating and also upsetting. To see this process, which is so important in terms of driving action at an international scale, and if done well, can translate to, to quite significant action at a national level, it risks being undermined entirely by by claims like this. And yeah. it makes you question, <laughs> I suppose, yeah, where we're, we're next? Yeah, after this, because I think it's been, yeah, I suppose faux pas is quite a diplomatic term. <laughs> To, yeah, yeah.
0: It, it just reminds me that, you know, this is the beginning of the UK Panto season. There will be people going boo and hiss <laughs> because he's, he's setting himself up in that way. Um, at the same time, I mean, one of the quotes from him was that if we took fossil fuels out of the system, then that would take the world back into caves. And I mean, I think I mean, he's clearly exaggerating to a large extent. But at the same time, I think there is a degree to which we do have to be more honest with people. I don't think that's his intention. I don't think his intention is to say, well, let's be honest. Honest and recognise the challenges. He's just saying, this is ridiculous. (laughs) But at the same time, we are completely fossil fuel dependent as a world. And yes, we are getting much better at renewable energies. There is a lot more wind. There is a lot more solar. But it is going to be a big transition. And we do need to keep on being ever more honest with people that... Business as usual, life as usual, it's not going to continue. And anybody who tells you that is frankly lying or hasn't thought about it properly. So while I wouldn't go remotely so far as saying it's going to take us back into caves, I did think it's going to change the way we do things. But hopefully, in many ways, it's going to change it for the better because we will have more community-based food systems, shorter supply chains, be producing more of our own food, improve nutritional quality, etc.,
1: Yes, I think that's been one of the challenges in trying to articulate some of the, the changes that people and I suppose society will have to make to to both adapt and to mitigate against climate change. And in some circumstances, that means that means sometimes difficult choices and it means significant change. But I think we could do more in terms of articulating what the alternative future looks like and what the benefits of that will be because at the moment it is all around sacrifice. It is all around giving something up. It is all around those, um, yeah, the the future that you're going to have is going to be less prosperous than the one that you have at the moment, which isn't necessarily true. And whenever you compare that against a future, whenever we haven't actually acted on this and we have three degrees of warming, that is absolutely terrifying. There's the risk of going back to the caves Mm -hmm. But there's also the risk of going towards hell um, if we don't phase these things out and we don't phase them out with a plan. And I think
0: in saying that, in talking about the the positive vision and how we can change things for the better, ecologically, socially, economically, you've just described the mission statement of 8.9.com and also the Nature Friendly Farming Network, which is a great place to say, well, let's go through the doors and into the conference chamber. So let's open this part of the conversation indeed as the conference itself opened with King Charles who called for investment in regenerative agriculture at the opening of COP28 and I just think it's worth reading out some of the things that the king said because of course you know there's no two ways about it he has been working on these issues for the vast majority of his life it's not like he's just sort of come up as a new king and suddenly had a bright idea and of course we need to remember in this context that he wasn't even allowed to go last year. So to an extent, he's been unleashed. The government have let him go and let him say some of the things that he wanted to. And in terms of regenerative agriculture, he said, how can we increase investments in regenerative agriculture, which can be nature positive, carbon sinks? What incentives are necessary? And how can those which have a perverse impact be eliminated with all due speed? So earlier on, before he came on to those points, he talked about having spent a large proportion of his life trying to warn of existential threats relating to global warming, climate change and biodiversity loss he says the dangers are no longer distant risks unless we rapidly repair and restore nature's unique economy based on harmony and balance which is our ultimate sustainer our own economy and survivability will be imperiled we are carrying out a vast frightening experiment of changing every ecological condition all at once at a pace that far outstrips nature's ability to cope. With what we are witnessing our choice is now a starker and darker one. How dangerous are we actually prepared to make our world? He says, I pray with all my heart that COP28 will be a critical turning point towards genuine transformational action. I think that's a really good place to start from. At the same time we hear the General Secretary of the United Nations. The language has been ramping up but still we are behaving as a society. Often in terms of global corporations and in terms of global governance, as if we can just carry on with business as usual, that climate change will just be a speed bump along the road. Uh, And at the same time, it's worth noting that, you know, the Global Alliance for the Future of Food has coordinated uh, a big call from 25 of the major philanthropic organisations to scale up the funding for a regenerative transition. So we are seeing people not just saying, gosh, we need to do something, but they are starting to point to the things that we can do and that we have to do. Do you think all this is going to make a difference, Phil?
1: I think it will make a difference. The big question is whether it makes the scale of a difference in the time that we need to make those changes to actually avert the worst of this. And our track record on this to date, I suppose we've had... (laughs) Yeah, nearly three decades of, of climate negotiations and commitments and for all intents and purposes, we're still on a pathway towards, um, yeah, at least two to three degrees warming at the moment. It could be very easy to be sceptical, but I think as we become more aware of the direct impacts of these and as we are experiencing those and as they increasingly grow in severity, then I think we might see... Yeah, the action that we actually need on this front. And it's complex. It requires a whole range of changes, I suppose, across institutions, for individuals, across nation states. But there are examples where we have we have acted in, in such ways. And you speak, I suppose it's the cliche that can be often be used as, as the war footing. We do need to move towards that. We have in recent times with COVID, say, for example, but... It's a very difficult thing to do with an issue which raises its head sometimes in uh, in ways which are directly harmful to people's lives, but more often than not in the Western worlds are inconveniences. And I think that's the real challenge. And I think part of it is, th- is the narrative of, of how this actually can build a better society acting on this. And it isn't, yeah, th- it's the point I made before, really, just in terms of less sacrifice, more gain.
0: And in terms of realism, Al Gore, the former vice president of the United States, put out some news over the weekend where his new outfit has been looking at the way that countries have been reporting their emissions, but then looking at the the difference between what countries are actually responsible for and what they've been reporting. And, and particularly, he was highlighting China and the USA, uh, and I think India, in terms of the under-accounting, that instead of making a difference, instead of seeing these emissions hopefully having peaked years ago and going exponentially downwards, we're still seeing a rise in in global emissions, partly because of the under-accounting that's been taking place and partly because... Business as usual is carrying on. The next one that I want us to move on to, Phil, we've talked about this before, which is cities and regions leading the way on real food and climate action. The reason I bring it up again is because we put on the site later last week an interview with Nicole Peter, who was one of the report authors, and I think it's a really important interview. I think it's one that people, you know, would do well to go and have a listen to. It's part of 8.9 Newsweek podcast that we released on Friday, and of course, it's on 8.9 TV if you go to the website as well and some of the things that we were talking about there were really interesting again she was emphasizing the need for a shift from just thinking about emissions to taking fossil fuels out of the food system she drew my attention to another piece uh, of research which was finding that food loss and waste represent half of the greenhouse gas emissions from food systems which was again something that was picked up in the global alliance for the future of food report where they were aiming to shift attention to fossil fuels. And in that report, they were talking about energy from food loss and waste, the energy that's used there being about 38% of the energy that's used in food systems. And then that, that processing and ultra processing of food is responsible for about 42%.
1: This brings us on a little bit to the leader's declaration on food systems. Long title, Leader's Declaration on Sustainable Agriculture, Resilient Food Systems and Climate Action. Within this, so it's 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 a high level statement from 134 nations to which essentially they commit to forming agriculture and land use and biodiversity policies with, with a food lens. It's been really welcome to see that that food systems thinking brought into COP because it's surprisingly been absent for the last two to three decades. But it doesn't really tackle any issues around dietary change, for example, or dietary choices, which could have a role, as you say, if you're focusing on the very fossil fuel intensive um, and reliant food products that could have a role in trying to help phase those out and remove fossil fuels from the system. And it doesn't really look at the systems of food systems, I think, and that's a bit of a missed opportunity. Again, what it doesn't do is it doesn't explicitly call for the removal of fossil fuels from the food system. And again, there is a big international opportunity to make this link, to catalyse that action that you speak of over a transition period. And it's been missed. And it's just interesting that, that this piece that looks at food waste looks at fossil fuels and driving that and we have this international commitment which doesn't really square that circle, so to speak.
0: And I want to just take a moment, Phil, to think about emissions, because often when we're talking about emissions within, you know, the sector that we're working in, we're complaining about the way that emissions distort the conversation, and that we need to shift the focus to a whole range to a sort of more holistic vision of land use. But at the same time, I think it's worth just taking a step back to why that emissions reduction, you know, was important in the first place. And of course, we need emissions reduction, we need to get carbon out of the atmosphere, because climate change is a clear and present danger. And so the aim, of having that emissions focus was to make it relatively straightforward for people to visualise, for governments to visualise the actions that needed to be taken. And some people used that as an opportunity to catalyse the action that was necessary. But at the same time, we've seen this emissions lens used by some corporations and by some governments as a way of misdirecting uh, attention, whether that's around things like ruminant methane, where all of the focus has been there and we haven't seen as much attention on other aspects of the food system that we've had this misdirect on something which is important but it's not a major contribution which has then allowed business as usual to take place uh, in in the rest of the food system
1: and the rest of the food chain i think you're right really with that emissions focus everything gets tied in with it almost as a say for example in terms of addressing the nature emergency and biodiversity loss all of the rhetoric around nature generally has been around its, its role in trying to mitigate and adapt to climate change. It's almost being shoehorned in, look, this issue is important because it can help address climate change, when in reality it's important in its own right. Yes, they're very, very closely linked, and there's synergies between them, but there's also the risk of trade-offs, depending on what, what strategy you employ. It's that idea of interlinked kind of challenges and trying to make sure that they are all viewed in the round. And I think, again, the the emissions side of things, we're seeing this massive, massive debate around big kind of pharma, with an F, not a PH, um, and their influence on COP negotiations, and I suppose, as you've mentioned, ruminant methane. And I think, quite rightly, there is some concern that... The whole gwp100 gwp star debate and the need for a better metric some are seeing that as the likes of cargill and jbs and organizations like that saying we can move towards reducing our emissions by this amount per year we are delivering cooling aren't we great all of the issues we've caused in the past or all of the other issues that we are that are, are contributing to at the moment are overlooked and it's an emissions lens, they're seeing reductions, but they could be causing absolutely catastrophic impacts in other areas with a really, really like narrow carbon tunnel vision doesn't get taken into account. So with
0: that, let's come to the last story that we were going to cover this week, which is three steps towards real action on food at Comp 28 And this came from uh, the Food Farming and Countryside Commission and it links very closely to those things that we've been talking about. And I'm just going to read through the three items and then perhaps we can just talk them through. So the first is that we need to rebalance the voices in the room. We'll talk about what that means. Second, we need to prioritize actions that take Fossil fuels and not just emissions out of food systems. And then third, we need to follow the money. So let's just talk through those. What do we mean by we need to rebalance the voices in the room? To me, It means we need to listen to corporations. I think the corporations, you know what, they are important actors uh, in this. They have a lot of responsibility, therefore they need to be there. But certainly their voices have been disproportionately strong. Also, in terms of academia, it's important to listen to academics. We need peer-reviewed science to guide us in this way. But we also need to listen to indigenous communities, to farmers who have incredible experience built up from years of working on their piece of land. Uh, And so in terms of that, It's about getting Indigenous voices and more voices from the Global South properly embedded within those negotiations and also, to an extent, rebalancing the conversation around climate change, that it isn't just something that's going to happen to people in the South, that it's going to happen to people everywhere. And this, again, comes back to that point about honesty that we were discussing earlier. It it may well be that people in the Global South are the most impacted by the weather, but the level of conflict and potential migration that that causes will force those uh, challenges northwards but also of course we are going to be experiencing we're already experiencing challenges in terms of farming and food systems in the developed world as well
1: yeah i i would agree with all of that the question is whether this cop has done right in those and i'd say probably by and large it it hasn't and uh, the right voices probably haven't really been in the room at the degree they should have been there probably hasn't been the the weight of attention on the global south and on indigenous communities and on women and the impacts of climate change on them but also the solutions that they have and i think that is one of the potential fundamental flaws of the of the process in the round it brings in the question whether there's there's needs for alternative or different mechanisms to try and bring more of an equality of voice rather than the kind of disproportionate scenarios that we've seen At this COP, but probably at others as well.
0: I don't think that we need to particularly talk about that second one, about prioritising actions around fossil fuels, because we've already talked about it today and we've talked about it in the past. But the third, follow the money. What does that mean, Phil?
1: Yeah, I think it means reforming how we do things or how we use money within the system. And I think that's a case of ending perverse subsidies, which we know are a driving cause of perilous decisions, which yeah, are driving yeah ecological change and the climate emergency as well. So trying to reform those kind of structures is absolutely imperative within all this. I think developing the frameworks which ensure that private finance, and we mentioned the, the philanthropic end of the spectrum and the amount of money that they're calling for and the amount of money that they're committing to, ensuring that that actually delivers tangible impact and We've seen a fair bit of criticism, I suppose, within this COP of the use of the term regenerative. Um, lots of big businesses using that and, and outlining their credentials. But does it actually translate to, to meaningful change and meaningful action? I think also trying to support the decisions at a farm level, which are economically prudent and also beneficial from the perspective of climate and nature, and trying to engender some of that change as well are all going to be key within this. So it's yeah, the overarching kind of frameworks of finance, both public and, fu- and private, which influence how land is used.
0: Thanks, Phil. So, yeah, we're talking about there the, the way that the state functions in terms of those subsidies for fossil fuels, making sure that the agricultural transition is properly funded from a taxation perspective. But also the other thing that's really important is natural capital markets. You know, we have this enormous fossil fuel dependent market system. Therefore, we've got to help that market system transition and natural capital is an important part of that. And although carbon markets have come in for quite a lot of criticism over the course of the last year, that's not a reason for not continuing to trade carbon. It's a reason for getting it right, making sure that we can rapidly scale natural capital markets at the same time as ensuring robust compliance and common metrics. And we'll come back to those metrics in a minute but I just want to say that I'm saying this with a degree of caution because of course this is very much from a global north developed world perspective. And African food system leaders put out a statement, it was on behalf of the Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa, AFSA last week and we put this on the website they say put people, nature and livelihoods at the forefront of climate action. And one of the points that they raised was rejecting false climate solutions. they say reject the adoption of false climate solutions such as climate smart agriculture I'm completely with them there. Carbon credits and nature based solutions well that's the thing that's a bit more of a challenge. So clearly there is concern you know from those organisations that are part of that alliance that, uh, that the natural capital market is just another way of imposing a set of western solutions on Africa and we need to make sure that that isn't the case. But at the same time Time, we need to find ways of enabling the market to trade in ways uh, which improve our ecological security rather than diminishing it at an ever greater accelerating rate.
1: Completely agree. And I think within that, the state has an important role in helping to shape and regulate said markets so that they don't result in the perverse consequences and marginalization of people, of nature, of all these other things that are absolutely crucial. It's how they're designed and regulated, and that is the thing that I think will be absolutely crucial within all of that.
0: And I just want to come back to that statement, because what I was reading from that statement from AFSA, you know, that was that was a sort of a negative element, but there, an awful lot of what they were saying was very positive. Again, it was about embracing agroecology as a solution, prioritising local solutions, focusing on adaptation, as well as mitigation and biodiversity. And the final thing they talk about is allocating climate finance wisely. Again, making sure that money is going into uh, the global south, but that it's, it's working properly on the ground, that it's going to smaller scale farmers, smaller scale fishers and pastoralists and indigenous communities, rather than staying with government to change things at a national level. The people on the ground are the people who are doing the work and have the capacity to change things. And the final thing that I want to say is just to, you know, you know I talk there, you talk there about the need for robust compliance, about the need for common metrics within natural capital uh, markets. And of course, the sustainability Food Trust has been working for many years now on the global farm metric and this is a mechanism that would allow a level playing field, not just at a national or continental level but at a global level, if we could agree these metrics across ecology across society, including animal health and welfare uh, and across economic value. Right, well I think we've done quite well, we've talked through uh, some of the issues inside the chamber, we've also talked about some of the issues going on uh, around cop i think we should leave it there so from me thanks very much for listening of course as ever we've only covered a very small amount of what's available on 8.9.com so please do visit the website check it out sign up for the newsletter and visit the nature friendly farming network website as well i've been finlow stain. bye for now
1: and i've been phil carson goodbye